in your, uh, if you've got your smartphone Bible app, you can turn towards the uh, book of Psalms. We're going to be in Psalm 119 again. So we had mentioned this last week, but we're going to be in Psalm 119 for the month of November in these little uh, chunks of Psalms, uh, Psalm 119. We've been in the book of Psalms for quite some time throughout the summer and then uh, here into the fall. And uh, Psalm 119 is pretty lengthy, so we're not going one verse at a time, uh, as is our usual uh, sort of uh, practice of walking through a text, uh, but uh, taking chunks of this very important psalm. As we continue this sermon series, Scale the Mountain, Worshiping God from the Songs of His People. And as I was thinking about this text this morning, and thinking about our sermon series as a whole, and this idea of scaling the mountain, I was thinking about what it is that we view the church to be. Do we view the church to be more like a mountain view Airbnb? which is, if you know me, way more my speed than what I'm about to say. Uh, A place of, of great comfort in which we get to see the mountain. But it's a place that's comfortable. Or do we view the church more like Mount Everest Base Camp? Where we gather together because we're on a journey to scale a mountain... And we need space to gather together to acclimate ourselves to the climate and to the altitude to journey up the mountain together. Is the church more like Mount Everest Base Camp or is it more like a Mountain View Airbnb? Those are very different things. And I never want to go to Mount Everest Base Camp. I only want to go to a Mount, Mountain View Airbnb because uh, that's, that's my speed there. But... Unfortunately, I think for me and for us, the church ought to act more like Mount Everest Base Camp. These two views, I think, are really important for us because it gets at one of the questions that we have when we read a text like Psalm 119. If you spent some time over the last week or so reading Psalm 119, and I would encourage you to spend some time in your quiet time with the Lord over the next month in reading through Psalm 119. Uh, It takes uh, a little bit of time to read through it all, but it is helpful to kind of get the full scope of Psalm 119. But one of the questions that you might have when you read Psalm 119 is, what what do we? What does it take to have this kind of view of God's word? Because the way in which the psalmist speaks about God's word asks the question for us about whether or not God's word is essential to us or a nice extra. Like a nice thing, a good thing, not a bad thing, but, but an extra. You see, if we see the church as a Mountain View Airbnb, then we'll probably look at the Bible as a nice extra to my life. If if the church is this place of comfort that we gather together to look upon God's mountain and see it, then the Bible probably is this nice extra that it's good to have, but not essential to my life. 
if we view the church as Mount Everest base camp and the Bible as one of the essential things that you need to scale the mountain, well, we're going to view the Bible a lot differently. It's essential. It's the only way we're getting up this mountain. It's one of these essential tools that we have. Now, I don't think that any of us would say out loud, ah, the Bible's a nice extra and not essential to our lives as a Christian. But I think we often live that way, and I think mainly we live that way because we view it to be ineffective to address our problems. It's not because we don't like God's Word. It's because we don't think it will actually address the real problems of my life. And if we believe that it won't address the real problems of my life, we only go to it when we don't have problems. It's a nice extra. When things are going well, I get to sit down and read my Bible. But when things are not going well, I avoid it. Not because I intentionally want to avoid it, but because I don't think it matters to address my problems. You see, our problems are just too big. Our problems are too big, which makes the church like an Airbnb, which is not what you go to when you got big problems. Our problems are just too big for God's word. Our personal problems, our corporate problems, and humanity's problems are just too big. Our personal problems, maybe your problems are financial or family, relationships, your own health, mental or physical, abuse that you have suffered or currently suffer, strife that you are constantly walking into. That is just simply too much to handle. How is the Bible going to help me in any of those things? What about our corporate problems, our relationships together as a body? Our current season as a church might feel some difficulty and some tension. Some very real difficulty and tension. We feel ourselves either within our own church or within our denomination and presbytery and what that means for us as a church. That's a very real tension point. What does that mean for us? Problem feels maybe too big for the Bible. What about humanity's problems. Well, we could list a lot of things. Climate change, racism, sexism, structural injustice, unending war everywhere, terrorism, gun violence, poverty, abortion, political abuse of power, on and on and on we could go. These problems, they are simply too big for God's word. They're simply too big for God's word to handle. Now, whether we believe that or not, we functionally believe that when we go one of these routes. One of the routes that we can go is to avoid the problems of our personal lives and the world around us and focus on God's word only as if we lived in a different time period. As if we lived in a totally different place that didn't have all of these chaotic things going on. Totally avoid the Bible addressing the concerns of our lives or our church or our world. We can have great exegesis 
digging into the text in the original languages and generally applicable to all people in all time. So really, no people in any time. Right? Now, that's not a bad thing. That kind of scholarship in the Bible is very good. It's not a bad thing, but it's incomplete. If that's all we do when we gather together for worship, then the Bible is a nice extra at a Mountain View Airbnb. Look at this cool thing that it says, but it doesn't actually affect you scaling any mountain. Now, the other extreme that we could avoid is we could just avoid the Bible completely and try and solve our individual and corporate problems, whether that's our church's problems, our community's problems, or, our, or humanity's problems, without God's Word. Yeah, we have our quiet time in our church, yes, but that's separate from solving the problems of my life and our world. That requires books and conversations and political action and hard work and therapy and my own self-sufficiency. Now again, those things aren't bad. They're not bad things. They're simply incomplete. Simply incomplete. Both of those things view the Bible as insufficient for our journey in the world to the mountain of the Lord, the new heavens and new earth. What if we combine these two approaches? What if we viewed the Bible as essential, dug deep into it, and then from it viewed the world, our own journey, and our own problems and afflictions? What if... The Bible was something essential for us to run to, to experience God and bring those very real problems to the text. That's what we're going to try and do this morning and what we seek to do every week. Just a, by way of reminder, uh, Psalm 119 is an acrostic of the Hebrew alphabet. So each of the stanzas of eight verses starts with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and each line in that stanza starts with that letter. And so, it's a beautiful structure in Hebrew. It doesn't really come across in English, right? <laughs> like it, but the beautiful, intense structure is all about God's Word. It's all about God's Word. It's all about the Bible. And so, this morning, we're going to look at what does God's word have to say about our affliction? Okay, so we're going to jump to 105. Psalm 119, 105 to 112. This, just this little stanza. Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. I've promised it once and I'll promise it again. I will obey your righteous regulations. I have suffered much, O Lord. Restore my life again as you promised. Lord, accept my offering of praise and teach me your regulations. My life constantly hangs in the balance, but I will not stop obeying your instructions. The wicked have set their traps for me, but I will not turn from your commandments. Your laws are my treasure. They are my heart's delight. I am determined to keep your decrees to the very end. You see, in scaling the mountain, 
And, and remember, the mountain in the Psalms uh, it talks a lot about the mountain of God, this place in which God dwells with His people. And in scaling this mountain, we need a light for our path. But the path is a mountain path. Now, I don't do a lot of hiking on mountains, but for those of you that do, a mountain path is pretty difficult, right? I mean, there's different difficulties probably, right? But a mountain path is a difficult path of suffering and affliction. And the psalmist looks at these. He says, I have suffered much, O Lord. Restore my life again as you have promised. My life constantly hangs in the balance, but I will not stop obeying your instructions. The wicked have set their traps for me, but I will not turn from your commandments. This suffering. The mountain path is not, this mountain path on our journey is not one of ease. It's one that contains afflictions and suffering. We've already talked about what are the problems that we believe that are too big for the Bible. But I want you to think right now, take a moment to just think about your suffering and affliction right now. What are the personal things that weigh you down? What are the things that are on your heart and on your mind as you go to bed and as you wake up? What are those personal Issues and problems. They related to finances or friendships, job or lack of job, your family, your health. What are those things? What are those things that relate to us corporately? Our mission, our vision, our current season as a church, our city. The challenges that we exist, the, the, the tension inherent in what we're trying to do in this place. Seeking to be a diverse people in the middle of Indiana, in a city with historic racism. That's, that's a lot of tension, guys. We're walking straight into tension. What does that mean for us? What are the problems across humanity that affect you, that you think about? Are you reeling from war and the real suffering that is happening across the globe? You see, what the psalmist does and what all of God's Word does is honest with our suffering. You know, it's, it's really interesting. We come to the text often. We come to the Bible and we're like, Man, the Bible just is too big for, or I mean, our problems are too big for the Bible because it just doesn't address this. And yet, the psalmist speaks with a lot of reality. My suffering, I have suffered much, O oh Lord. My life constantly hangs in the balance. Remember, this is a, the, the Psalms are prayers. The psalmist is praying this to the Lord. Right? Lord, my life constantly hangs in the balance. See, the first step to understanding how God's Word addresses our afflictions is to be honest about our suffering and afflictions. The Bible doesn't ask us to come and lay aside who we really are and put on a smiley face 
and sing good worship songs and act like I've got joy, right? That's not how it works. When you don't have joy, you know what you should do? Say, I don't have joy. Say, I'm suffering and my life hangs in the balance. Lamenting it. Speaking it honestly. Being okay with not being okay. But from here, from this place of honesty about these things, what is the psalmist's response? What is the psalmist's response? Well, the psalmist says, right, uh, I've promised it once and I'll promise it again. I will obey your righteous regulations. I have suffered much, O Lord. Restore my life. Then he says, my life constantly hangs in the balance, but I will not stop obeying your instructions. Okay, so this psalmist is super holy. That sounds great. I'm suffering much, Lord, but I will not disobey you. So uh, what about the rest of us? Because that's not my response. Right? When I experience suffering and affliction, my instant response is not like, Lord, I know this is hard, but I'm going to keep following your word. That's not my response. So if it's any of your responses, please let me know afterwards your secret of how you do this. Or maybe, maybe, maybe he's super holy, the psalmist, or maybe he's super naive. My life constantly hangs in the balance. Doesn't he know that the scriptures teach us over and over again? It is the Lord who is sovereign over all, including our afflictions and suffering. Maybe he's super naive and saying, my life constantly hangs in the balance and Lord, I know you don't have anything to do with that, so please come rescue me. But the scriptures actually teach us that the Lord is sovereign over all things. Uh, several years ago here at City Hope, we went through the book of Lamentations, which is a, it's, it's a cheery way to invite people to your church. Come, listen, we're talking about lamentations come listen to us laments right like there is the reality of lament all across the scriptures and one of the things that the third chapter of lamentations has a ton of what this psalm is addressing uh, jeremiah writing this book it says this to the lord i am the one who has seen the afflictions that come from the rod of the lord's anger he has led me into darkness shutting out all light he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. Jeremiah is attributing his suffering to the Lord. He, made, he has made my skin and flesh grow old. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and surrounded me with anguish and distress. He has buried me in a dark place like those long dead. He has walled me in and I cannot escape. He has bound me in heavy chains. And though I cry and shout, he has shut out my prayers. He has blocked my way with a high stone wall. He has made my road crooked. He is hidden like a bear or a lion waiting to attack me. He has dragged me off the path and torn me in pieces, leaving me helpless and devastated. He has drawn his bow and made me the target for his arrows. He shot his arrows deep into my heart. My own people laugh at me. All day long they sing their mocking songs. He has filled me with bitterness and given me a bitter cup of sorrow to drink. 
He has made me chew on gravel. He has rolled me in the dust. Jeremiah is very poetic in all of his language, but this one, just because I hate the sound of that, like that one just strikes it like he has made me chew on gravel. That sounds like a horrible experience. Peace has been stripped away, and I have forgotten what prosperity is. I cry out, my splendor is gone. Everything I had hoped for from the Lord is lost. The thought of my suffering and homelessness is bitter beyond words. I will never forget this awful time as I grieve over my loss. Some of you are like, I can't believe that's in the Bible. Like, Jeremiah saying this to God? About God? This mountain path of affliction to God's glory is actually a path laid out by the Lord. My suffering is from the Lord. Our suffering, humanity's suffering, is all allowed by God. He could choose to stop it if he wanted. But he doesn't. Why then, if that's true, why would I go back to God's word and say... My suffering is real. My life hangs in the balance. And yet, I promise to not stop obeying your word. Why would the psalmist say that? Why would you and I say that? Well, you see, if we view the church as a Mountain View Airbnb and the Bible as a nice extra, we wouldn't say that and we'd throw this away. Because it's just an extra. It's not necessary. And clearly it is full of a pathway towards suffering and sorrow. I mean, think about this. We're focusing on praying for the persecuted church throughout the month of November. You're saying, Lord, that people believe in you, Jesus, and they are faithful to share the gospel with others and actually face suffering for that very thing and you don't stop it. You see, we don't actually ever get to the hard question if we're not honest with what is actually happening. But here's the thing. We could get rid of this idea, throw the Bible out. It's just this, you know, non-essential, nice extra. But here's the thing. The Mountain View Airbnb is a fantasy. It doesn't exist. We're all on Mount Everest. We're all in this thing together. Where else can we go? Where else can we go? We're all on Mount Everest. We're all in a dark path. And the scriptures are the thing that lights our path. The scriptures are the thing that light our path. The scriptures give us a light to trust in. How is this possible? Well, it's possible because of what the psalmists are constantly pointing towards. And that is Christ. One of the most challenging spots in the New Testament is in the book of Acts. Peter is praying. And he says this. He says, in fact, this has happened in this very city for Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Gentiles, he he is just quoted from the Psalms about the nations raging against God. 
Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant, whom you anointed. But everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. Jesus faced ultimate suffering. Jesus, the Son of God, never sinned, constantly obeyed. When He says, I promise to keep your word and obey your righteous regulations, He did it perfectly. And yet, He was crucified on a cross. Experienced a shameful death. Everyone was united against Him. And the Lord, according to the Lord's will, all of that happened. All of that suffering happened because God allowed it to and even determined it. Why? Well, because in the midst of that suffering is where we find salvation. That Jesus bore on the cross not punishment for His sin, but for your sin and my sin. Jesus endured all of that affliction and suffering so that you and I can be saved from our sin. Jesus was crucified in your place and in my place so that we can have access to God and be fully forgiven of our sins. Without suffering, this cannot be true. Without the cross, this cannot be true. It cannot happen without suffering or the cross. Now, that doesn't change the reality of our suffering, but what it does do is give us some perspective on God's Word. Because Jesus, who endured this suffering, meets us in God's Word. So Peter, right, he says this about God doing this thing, right? According to God's will, the, the cross happens so that any and all who are trusting in Jesus can have salvation. And then Peter says this about God's Word. In 2 Peter, Peter says, Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or, hum or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. Whoop, I missed one. I was like, this is not the right passage here. We're going to back up. 19, I missed one. Sorry. Because of that experience, we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. You must pay close attention to what they wrote, for their words are like a lamp. Shining in a dark place. Exactly what our psalm says. Until the day dawns and Christ the morning star shines in your hearts. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. Okay, I want to back up here. So he says, because of this experience, what Peter is referring to is that when Peter... Uh, when Jesus was alive, during Jesus' ministry, there's this moment in which Jesus goes up on a mountain. 
He takes Peter and John and James with him. And they see Jesus uh, transfigured before them, right? Is what, what the scriptures say. What happens is that Jesus pulls back a little bit of the veil of his humanity and shows his divine glory. They get a picture of Jesus as he is in heaven. They get to see the reality of Jesus in all of his glory. They get a little glimpse of this. But what does Peter say about it? Because of that experience, what does he say? We have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. Peter says, because I witnessed the transfiguration, because I witnessed Jesus in his glory, what I'm telling you is you get more in the Bible. He's saying, you want to know a light to your path? You want to know how to walk through? And Peter certainly knows affliction. He's saying this after experiencing the afflictions of the early church. He's saying, you really want to know how to have a light to your path? It's in what the prophets have said. It's in God's word. And Peter got to see the glory of Jesus without that veil of his humanity. And Peter says, we get even more because we have the scriptures. This is crazy. So, so Peter, right, you might say, so when Peter says this truth about how everything that they did to Jesus was determined according to your will, God, you might say, okay, I get that. I get that, and I get that Peter suffered for the gospel. But Peter, you had access to Jesus. You walked around with him. You saw the transfiguration. Then you saw him crucified. And then guess what? You saw him resurrected. Of course you could say that. We didn't see that. What is Peter telling us? We get to experience that same reality because of God's Word. Because of God's Word. Because God's Word is how God reveals Himself to us. Right? It's, it's one of the things, I, I've talked about this a, a, a number of times, when Jesus is with His disciples, right before He goes to the cross, what does He say? It's better for you if I leave. Because then I send the Holy Spirit. We have... In God's word, because of the Spirit, within God's word, we have access to God Himself. We have access to the Lord. We get to experience Jesus. We get to come close to God because He reveals Himself to us in His word. When we take his word, and we read it. In faith, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we get to experience Jesus. We get to experience this light, this lamp shining in a dark place. It's what we get in God's word. Now, maybe you're like, that sounds great. Sounds great. But I'm not quite there yet. Like, I, I get that, I want that, 
but I'm not quite there yet. I'm more in the, Lord, you're making me chew on gravel kind of place. Right? Well, in Lamentations, Jeremiah goes on, immediately after that spot that we just finished, right? Right? So he says, My splendor is gone. Everything I had hoped for from the Lord is lost. The thought of my suffering and homelessness is bitter beyond words. I will never forget this awful time as I grieve over my loss. I don't think I'm uh, putting enough shouting tone into that text. What Jeremiah is saying. I will never forget this, Lord. Never. The very next words that Jeremiah says is this. Yet I still dare to hope when I remember this. I dare to hope, right? What Jeremiah is saying is, I'm not yet at hope. I'm trying to hope. I'm trying to trust that God's word actually has something to say for my afflictions. But I'm not yet there. I'm daring to hope. Daring to hope means I know that I could get hurt again. I know that I'm going to trust you, Jesus, and this mountain path might take me higher, and I might see this glorious vista of who you are and what you're doing, and then I might trip and fall down a ravine and land back where I started. I'm daring to hope. Why would I dare to hope when I remember this? The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness, his mercies, mercies begin afresh each morning. Now that one, 23, that's the one that you see, you know, in nice fancy script on people's walls, right? Great is his faithfulness, not the, uh, I will never forget this awful time, Lord. He says it like two verses before, right? We don't get great is your faithfulness, your mercies begin afresh each morning without saying, Lord, I'm not going to forget this suffering. You don't get to a place of daring to hope in reality and not just in platitudes if you're not honest with the painful suffering you experience. God's word does not ask us to say, I promise I will obey all your commands, full stop, without allowing us to say, my life hangs in the balance, I am suffering greatly, and I'm not going to forget it, Lord. God's word is only true for us if we embrace reality. Why do we fake it so much? Why are we so content to pretend like we're saying, great is your faithfulness, your mercies are new every morning, without being honest that we're also saying, I'm never going to forget how painful this is. God's word says it both. So we should too. We should too. I say to myself, the Lord is my inheritance, therefore I will hope in him. Jeremiah is saying, what I get is God himself. Not an easy life. Not no suffering or affliction. I get the greater thing. God himself. I get Jesus. Jesus. 
the God of the universe who has loved me enough to come and die in my place and who has promised to right all wrongs. I get Him. The Lord is good to those who depend on Him, to those who search for Him. So it is good to wait quietly for salvation from the Lord. And it is good for people to submit at an early age to the yoke of, dis, of His discipline. Let them sit alone in silence beneath the Lord's demands. Let them lie, down, lie face down in the dust, for there may be hope at last. Jeremiah's sharing of the gospel is to say, come, accept Jesus, then lay down on your face. I've never tried that, but I, we could try it and see if it works, right? What he says is, the Christian life is not one of skipping around in meadows. It's about lying on your face in the dust. Being honest. And that's where God meets you. Right? Jeremiah's not saying this because he's like, I'm trying to drum up this thing. It's because in his life, as he's laying down in the dust, he's saying, this is where Jesus met me. This is where he met me. And why did he meet me there? Because he knows exactly what that feels like. Because he was there. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus cries out, Lord, if there's another way, make it happen. And he is strengthened by angels to endure the cross. He knows what that suffering is like. He knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows what it's like to experience turmoil, physical pain, homelessness, poverty. He knows what it's like. And he meets us there. That's where he meets us. Let them turn the other cheek to those who strike them and accept the insults of their enemies. For no one is abandoned by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he also shows compassion because of the greatness of his unfailing love. For he does not enjoy hurting people or causing them sorrow. He does not enjoy hurting people or causing them sorrow. The heart of God is to come near to those who are brokenhearted to come near to us, to help show us that God's word is essential for our journey. And it's the only way we can meet him. And it's what we need. So if this is true, what we need to do is cling to God's word in the midst of our affliction and suffering. And if that's true, if we're going to do that, you know what we need to do? We need to know God's word and use God's word. We need to commit ourselves to knowing it. If we're going to take a mountain path to see the glory of the Lord, we need the essential tool and we need to commit to it. Right? You'll often hear me say here, right? Show me in the text where this shows up. And let's believe it. Let's, let's see it in the text. That's what we're going to need in this season as, our, as a church is the text. Running to the Scriptures together. Seeing God's Word together. Committing to it. And in the midst of that, we'll have to embrace suffering and affliction and being honest about our affliction. And in that, we dare to hope 
that Jesus will show up. We dare to hope that he will provide, that he will give life, that he will be a lamp to our feet. Okay, we're going to stand together and recite uh, this section of the psalm as we've been doing throughout this. The psalms are meant to be read together as God's people. I'm sure that that was a lengthy one when they read Psalm 119 together. So just this little section is what we're going to read together. But we're going to do this so that we can hear one another because the way in which we encourage one another is to speak God's word over each other. So let's recite together Psalm 119, 105 to 112. Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. I've promised it once and I'll promise it again. I will obey your righteous regulations. I have suffered much, O Lord. Restore my life again as you promised. Lord, accept my offering of praise and teach me your regulations. My life constantly hangs in the balance, but I will not stop obeying your instructions. The wicked have set their traps for me, but I will not turn from your commandments. Your laws are my treasure. They are my heart's delight. I am determined to keep your decrees to the very end. God, we pray now that you would come and that you would meet with us. Lord, we dare to hope that, Jesus, you are good and will do good things. And so, Jesus, we are trusting you and we are banking everything on you. So, Jesus, show up. Help us to be honest with one another and ourselves and you. And Jesus, would you meet us as we lay our face in the dust of honesty? Would you meet us and transform? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.